please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll be reading from verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When I was first exposed to biblical Christianity many years ago, one of the first things that happened was a young man, a couple years older than I, said, would you like for me to disciple you? And of course, I had no idea what that meant, and he came over with a, a little booklet, intended to help me understand Christianity, asked me to start reading through the book of John. I did that. I found it to be very helpful. And in that booklet, there were scripture passages, and they were each perforated so that a week at a time, I could take one of those passages and attempt to commit it to memory. And I began to do that. And to this day, I remember a number of those passages from that time when I was 17 years old. And I'm grateful for the willingness that he had to help me memorize scripture. One of the things about the Awana program that is tremendous is that it puts scripture in children's hearts. And that's the idea. That's the whole purpose, to, to get it in there. Uh, not that it's going to change the heart in the moment, but ultimately when the Spirit of God saves someone, there's this tremendous repository of truth that they could then begin to grapple with and interpret properly and understand it and be changed. It's right there in the heart. And, you know, David has said, I've hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so uh, what a great privilege you and I have with new believers to help them understand the value of God's word simply by giving it to them in small bits at a time that they could put it to memory and, and be changed by it. When Peter writes here to us, when he writes this letter to the elect of his day, but also to us in our day, his purpose is to display the power of Scripture. I want to ask you to jump ahead with me to verse 19 uh, before we look at our text together this morning. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention. Now, fast forward in my life, many years later, when I first got to Grace Community Church and, and seminary, and I, I really began for the first time to be exposed to a systematic theology. And as you who have been through our men's discipleship, you know that the basis of our men's discipleship is not just a systematic theology, but the beginning being a bibliology. In other words, what does the Bible say about the Bible? What has God said about his word? That's what a bibliology is. This was very foreign to me. I never heard of such a thing. And I'd never even heard of the, the concept that the word represents. I'd never heard of the idea of trying to get a handle on what the Bible says and why we believe the Bible, why we can trust it, in order to understand the rest of it. But think of it. What's more important than knowing what the Bible says about itself in order for us to be moved by what it says about everything else? In particular, not secondarily, but second on the list, 
character of God, right? We start with bibliology, and then we go to theology proper. Next, you men who've been through this, you gals have done some similar studies, we deal with anthropology, character of man. So now you've got a basis for why you believe what you believe. You can look at it and see what it says about the character of God, the character of man. You've got this massive disparity. You've got a Grand Canyon between the two. How do you bridge that? Well, you deal with a biblical soteriology. What the Bible says about salvation. What does it mean for there to be mediation between God and man with this spiritual Grand Canyon between them? How does that work? Next, then, we deal with an ecclesiology. Talk about what the church is. And this is why you and I place such a high value on the local church. This is why you're passionately committed to being here on Sunday mornings for the corporate gathering. You're passionately committed to discipleship, subjecting yourself to and involving yourself in the discipleship of others. And then your family group, where you're able to exercise your spiritual gifts in the lives of others, and believing that they will do the same for you, and everybody grows. God's glory is on display. We are likened to his character. That all starts with an understanding of the word of God. Got into seminary those years ago. Of course, seminary was just phenomenal. It was just awesome. I mean, I just, my eyes are open to so many things. But it was actually in a college Bible study that I was encouraged to help other young men walk through a bibliology. And one of the first passages they had us memorize was 2 Peter 1.19. To this day, I lean so heavily on this to help these dear souls who I think probably love Christ but have a very low view of Scripture while they proclaim to have a very high view of Scripture while they attempt to bring their own interpretation, their superimposed beliefs upon the Bible and then take the passage that they've superimposed interpretation upon, take that very verse and say, see, there you go. Proves what I already told you. We call this proof texting. And some men, believe it or not, stand in the pulpit and say, let me give you the proof text for that. I've heard men say that, and I'm, I'm saying, oh, my word, he said that out loud. It's the exact opposite of what we do when we're faithful to the Bible. We study the Scripture to see what it says and understand what it means. Go ahead and jump to the chase and say that your experience should be a byproduct of that, not a source of understanding it. The person who wants to interpret the Bible based upon his experience is going to go south fast. But the person who leans exclusively on the word of God and proper interpretive practices will understand the truth and he will find himself to be increasingly in unity with those who actually love Christ and his word. But the person who is in Christ and finds himself constantly butting heads with those who have a high view of scripture is doing so because he has a very high view of his own interpretive abilities rather than subjecting themselves to age-old truth which is just life-altering. Psalm 19. General revelation is what is generally known. Everyone knows it. You might even call it common sense, if you will. General revelation is that which is displayed in creation, meaning in all of God's creation, but specifically inside man's heart, but also the mountains. Everything that God has created, trees, birds, humans, we would look at that and say, clearly, there's a creator. There's created stuff. There's a creator that created that stuff. Those are big theological terms, I know. 
So with that creative work, we say there is a creator, and we say that uh, that revelation, that knowledge, is generally known. Everybody knows it. And there's special revelation. That's God's word and the person of God's word, person of Christ. So we have the revelation of Christ, the revelation of his word, and that's given specifically to those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They can understand it. They can read it. They can apply it. And in Psalm 19, you see such a remarkably high view of God's word. Listen to what he says, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These statements that David has made about God's word, really that God is making about God's word, cannot be said about anything else. It alone restores the soul. It alone makes the simple wise. It alone enlightens the eyes. God does what he does through his word. And the fact that he does it with and in his word is his prerogative. He has chosen to do it that way. That's God's doing. And he's done it in his grace for his glory and for our good. Let's talk a little bit about what the Bible says about itself. There's much more we could do on this note. But I want to briefly read to you from a few passages starting with Hebrews 4 verse 12. Is another one of those passages that early on, when I was 17 years old, was thrust into my mind and my heart, which forced me to grapple with what was being said about the Bible. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Only the Bible does that. Modern liberal theology gets this backwards. And so you have what's commonly referred to as German higher criticism, you know, redactive theology that intends to adjust the Bible where necessary. Maybe the most obvious expression of this is the Jesus Seminar, where men sat around a table and voted on the passages attributed to Christ and determined these were spoken by Christ and these were not, based upon the opinions of these scholars. They used little voting balls, red ball, black ball. Black ball meant absolutely not. Red ball meant definitely, and there were some in between. So ultimately, they pulled a Thomas Jefferson and said, this is God's word, and this is not. So what have they done? Sitting in judgment over the scripture. Now, you are guilty, and so am I. Let's not be, let's not be dishonest about this. There are times where we sit in judgment of scripture. We read the plain truth of scripture, and we find ourselves saying, this can't possibly be true. <laughs> so we do all kinds of grammatical gymnastics to make it say something it 
doesn't say. I assure you that is, it has been my endeavor for the last 20 or so years to avoid that at all costs. To be willing to say what it actually means. In many cases, it takes hard work. But it's not very popular. I should say it's not very popular with the false church. It's not very popular with the pseudo-church. But you can see what the Lord's doing in the midst of a, a growing crowd of folks who love the sufficiency of the Scriptures and are being changed by it. They're being stricken with a, a more clear and honest awareness of their actual spiritual condition. And what does that result in? A desire to change, a desire to grow. The power of the gospel rushes in at a fast rate at the point where a person says, I'm convinced this is true. And I'm convinced that I need to work hard, but I also need to be faithful to be certain I'm sitting under sound teaching in order that the Lord would do the work that he will do. But it starts with this idea. Now, let's look at this momentarily. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I think you understand that. It cuts both ways. It, it cuts deeply. It's sharp. It gets into the object that it's intended to cut. But then it says something that is impossible, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit. And this is one of two passages in the Bible that a person that would call himself a trichotomist would lean on, and he's wrong. The soul and the spirit are the same thing. The whole point here is that the word of God divides that which is the same thing. Look at the next illustration he uses. Joints and marrow. Now, joints and marrow are not the same thing, but in this day, there was no removing marrow and joints. There was no getting into the human body and separating these things in any sort of productive medical way. But this illustrates the fact that the Bible discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It cuts in and reveals what's there. And at the point, many times, where the Word of God begins to expose what's really there in a person's heart... He does everything he possibly can to cover it over with man-centered, man-appeasing teaching and really false theology. But a true and faithful and honest approach to the Word of God will uncover the condition of the heart and the genuinely regenerate man will embrace that as painful as it is. He will long to have more uncovered. See, this is the essence of the Word of God. You can't, nor can I, nor can anyone say this about anything other than God's Word. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. This illustrative expression of the eternal permanence of God's Word in contrast to everything else. This, by the way, doesn't just stretch into the future, but into the past. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Your word, O Lord, is preserved forever in heaven. That's not just in the future. You should think of your Bible as being what it is now and having always been exactly what it is in terms of content. There's nothing new in the Bible. There was nothing new in the Bible at any time. You say, but isn't it a narrative record of historical events? Yes. And if you read about the character of God, you see that he is sovereign, and he had all this in his heart before it was ever put on paper. It is perfect in eternity future and in eternity past. 
So when we say the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever, we say that it has always stood, and it will always stand. I think this, as penetrating as any, listen to this from Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6, as penetrating as any passage in the Bible about the Bible, it should really cause each of us to explore our theology and ask the question, is it possible that I've done something to add to what's in God's word? Listen to this. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, the idea here is that the person who finds refuge is the person who finds it in what? In the Bible. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The point is those who take refuge in him do it in his word. Then it says, do not add to his words. Why? Lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You've heard people say, God told me. This passage is for that person. God told me. And you say, well, they don't really mean God told me. Okay, then they should say what they really mean. The person who, especially the person who says God spoke to me audibly, should really consider the danger of what they think actually happened. And I think it's fair and reasonable to say to the person that believes or wants you to believe that God told them something, that they really did have a real experience. I don't think we ought to run around faulting or uh, you know, denying that people have had some sort of real experience. But really the ultimate goal is to get a person to compare his level of regard for his own experience to his level of regard for the Word of God. We're not in the business of trying to get people to compare their experience to the Word of God. That's not the idea, but boy, that's a prevalent idea, isn't it? If I could just, just compare it to the Word of God, then we'll figure it out. No, that's not the idea. The idea is having a high view of Scripture and an extremely low view of experience. Not that experience is always bad, but reserving for the Word of God this idea that it is perfect, that it separates the soul from the spirit, that it judges, it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then equally penetrating, but much more of a great warning, Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. And there's a lot of uh, misinterpretations of, of what's being said here. Some would say, well, see, there you go. If you do that, that's a person who was saved, but they're not saved anymore because God takes their name out of the lamb's book of life. Let's read it again. He says, um, God will take away his share in the tree of life. In the holy city. So whatever share that person may have thought he had, he didn't. As proven by his willingness to have such a low view of God's word and to equate his experience with it. It's a dangerous tactic, but quite common. Unbelievably common in our Christian culture. It's not unusual at all. You may have heard it this week. Well, in verse 16 of our text this morning, 
Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the four here, the Greek term gar, that begins this sentence connects, as you know, this section with the previous section. So Peter's saying this is not what we did because that is what we did. What did we do? What are we doing? I'll go back to verse 12. Verse 12 from last week. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter, I believe, is referring most directly and specifically back to that statement. I intend to remind you. You remember that from last week. You know, it's going to be my plan. I'm going to be thinking about reminding you. I think it right to remind you. And I will make every effort to remind you, not only by words but by lifestyle. Peter himself devoted to making every effort regarding the qualities in verses 5 through 7 that he has called you and me and the original readers to make every effort to be engaged in. Why? Why? To be able to make certain of your calling and your election. That's how he says it. So Peter here is saying, we told you and are still telling you. Now let's go back to verse 3 of his divine power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So Peter is reminding them of that. He's saying we didn't come to you with strange myths this is what we came to you with. We came to you with a rich and increasing understanding of how sanctification works. It begins with his divine power. The power of God to produce sanctification. It moves then next to the very great promises that have resulted in our partaking of the divine nature. We've escaped that corrupt nature We've been given a new nature. As Paul says it in Ephesians, we've been made alive. We who are dead have been made alive in Christ. We have this new nature. And so Peter, as you know, is reminding the reader, the believer of this truth. And then in verse 10 of 2 Peter 1, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we emphasized the need to be certain of your calling and your election. And how is Peter saying we are to do this? Well, back in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. The faith that you have obtained, the faith you have received, the faith that has been granted to you. You are to supplement that faith that you can be certain of your calling and election. And in our text this morning, 
in verse 16 where he says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to go back and look at what he has done. Here's what it is. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Moral excellence. Be committed to upstanding spiritual conduct in light of the faith that's been given to you. You are a new person. You have a new nature. Nurture that new nature with virtuous conduct. To that virtue, add knowledge, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Know his character from his word. Add to that self-control. Be willing to do what you know is right and to not do what you know is wrong. And you might say at this point to someone who says, ah, I just can't stop doing this stuff. You know, grow up. That's not a wrong thing to say. That's exactly how Paul says it in Ephesians. We are to grow up into him. You want to be helpful to a person and say, you know, you can exhibit self-control. You have before. You know, you didn't go out and kill anybody yesterday, right? What other things did you not do that are sinful? That was self-control. Nurture that. What things did you do that were pleasing to God, that displayed his glory? Thank him for the willingness and the faithfulness to do it. Continue in that. Be encouraged that you do have self-control and continue to stretch yourself in that self-control. Well, to your self-control, add steadfastness, perseverance. Be willing to be a person who is disciplined to a daily regimen of life. Get into a rhythm. Get into a pattern. Subject other people to that pattern. Ask them to help you and strengthen you and encourage you. With that, add godliness. And we've defined this a number of ways, but maybe the most practical and helpful definition is to be reverent of God, to be thinking about him, to be meditating on his word, to be obeying him where you understand his word. That's godliness. To godliness, add brotherly affection. Be willing to engage This doesn't mean that you put your whole life story on display every time you meet somebody, but be willing to stretch yourself a little further in your relationships to express your literal affection, to express what you feel for people. That's what that is. It's a brotherly affection for Christians. And then love, and that goes beyond brotherly affection extensively into a willingness to die for those as Christ did for those who would kill us. That's what love is. So that's what Peter did do. That's what Peter is doing. That's what a pastor has done and does do. Let's meditate on these things, the things we know to be true. Let's avoid the potentially silly myths that could be very, very persuasive. Let's run from that. But see, Peter was most certainly accused of offering up false information. And what was his response? No, I didn't. You know. Paul said this to numerous bodies of people to whom he wrote. You remember my character. You remember Silas. You remember Timothy. You remember these men with whom I ministered. You know that the result of our faithfulness to you is your faithfulness to Christ, and the world knows about it, especially in 1 Thessalonians, right? What a beautiful statement. And then he follows that up with, by the way, excel still more. Don't just keep doing what you're doing. Don't rest in what you have done, but 
He sells still more. Trust Christ all the more. He gets to the end of that book, 1 Thessalonians 5, and he tells them some very practical things. Don't lie. You know, be sure that you don't lie to each other. Oh, and pray without ceasing. So Peter, in the same way, calls the reader, calls you, calls me to a very practical theology, and he very clearly and poignantly says, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And I was no candidate for uh, the uh, John Maxwell School of Persuasion or uh, Norman Vincent Peale uh, or others who are very persuasive speakers, eloquent. Paul said that about himself. He didn't come with eloquence of speech. In fact, he came with that which would be considered foolishness, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. The cross of Christ is foolishness to the world. That's how I came. came with truth. Now, I think he spoke clearly. I'm certain he did. He, he wrote clearly. And you and I are to be willing to do the work necessary to understand clearly and to speak clearly and to say things that will actually be helpful to people. But endless myths don't do that. They're very persuasive. You ever walk away from some sort of pep talk, some sort of seemingly powerful speech and say, man, that was, that was amazing. And then a week later, somebody asks, what was it about? I don't know, it was amazing. That guy's a great speaker. And I encourage you to carefully and lovingly, but carefully assess what you hear, especially when it is in regard to the things of God. You have a Bible. You probably have a few. You need to know it. I need to know it better than I do, as do you. We all need to be very careful to be subject to the Holy Spirit's interpretation of his word. Think of it in practical terms. When you say something, right, when you give someone an instruction or you say something and you think you've been clear about it, is your expectation that a couple years later, nine people are going to come back with ten different opinions about what you meant? This, this means no. <laughs> no, you won't do that, right? A guy told me one time in a Bible study, you know, I was talking about what I'm talking about right now, and he had a thick study Bible, and his face was getting red, and I could tell he wanted to say something, and I, I was hoping it, you know, didn't include weapons, because he was looking really upset, and he finally held his Bible and shook, and he said, there's a lot of stuff in here, <laughs> and I, I said, I agree, you're right, there's a lot of stuff in here, so let's start with what it says about itself, let's start there, and then a little at a time, let's expose ourselves to what it says about other things. You know, you've heard a lot of comments, and so have I, uh, about one's personal experience as it relates to things of the Lord. It can be, often is, an imposition upon the Bible, or a superimposition upon the Bible. You know, an opinion, an attitude, a thought, a conviction. And a lot of times it's undergirded with a statement like this. I was there when it happened, so I know it was of the Lord. Now, this was the foundation of my theology in 1987, attending an Assembly of God church for about three months, right out of college, and I'd gotten to know the pastor there. He says, so when you hear somebody say that this is not true, you, you tell them, I know it's true because I was there when the Lord did it, and you can't argue with that. And that idea, that attitude has gotten a ton of mileage with so many people's lives. I was there. How can you argue with my experience? Conversation over. That's the attitude we get from the person who believes he has a high view of Scripture when he actually has a very low view of Scripture when his assessment of the Scripture is exclusively subject to his experience. I was there when it happened. Therefore, it was of the Lord. 
Or he might say, God speaks to us all differently. It just depends upon what type of personality you have. So go take some personality test. You know, go waste 50 bucks or whatever it costs on some personality test. You know, you don't need that. Say, but aren't personalities different? Yeah, but that's because we're not perfect. Say, but aren't these studies, what in the world did Paul do without the DISC exam? Because I remember when I first got to seminary, Actually, it wasn't at the master's seminary. I, I actually went to another seminary for three days. I was going back and forth. You know, which one should I go to? So I sat down. I took this exam, and I go through the whole thing. And I called my buddy, my very close friend who had graduated from the seminary. And I'm answering all these questions that are just bizarre. You know, I mean, it must have been, must have been 150 questions. And at least seven of them were the same thing. What do you think about your mom? So I called my friend. I said, hey, uh, just finished the exam. He says, how do you think you did? I said, I think I did really bad on the theology section, you know, the Bible stuff. I know I did bad on that. But the other stuff, I don't even know what to think. And he said, well, how do you feel about your mom? <laughs> he had taken the test three or four years earlier. And, you know, the, the word of God exposes the heart. It judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And by the way, those studies that man does many times gets so much stuff right and sometimes gets a lot of stuff wrong, but the Word of God never does. Is there overlap? Of course there is, because a broken clock is right twice a day. But man's efforts has nothing to add to the Bible. Do you see how that displays a low view of the Scripture? You say, but what if the Bible confirms it? Well, what if it doesn't? Who cares whether or not the Bible confirms it? Why not just stick with the Bible and believe exactly what the Bible says about the condition of man, especially in light of the absolute certain reality that in man's systems, there will come a time, and you know this, you've seen it many, many times, in that system, it will refute some things that the Bible says, in particular, the doctrine of total depravity. Man's got a clean slate, right? Every psychologist on the planet, even those who call themselves Christian psychologists, do not believe in total depravity. They don't. Otherwise, they would simply stick to what the Scripture says. But because efforts of man salve the conscience and appease man's view of himself, they're willing to engage in what began to be called integration in the 80s. You take man's thinking and you kind of mix it with the Bible. And you know this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So sticking to the Bible, does that mean you don't read other books? No, Paul read other books. And you're not going to learn from people. But the people that we ought to be learning from are those who have a high view of Scripture. You know, Sigmund Freud's got nothing to offer us. But there are people who are convinced that Sigmund Freud was the one who finally got us on the right track of understanding man's true condition, and the Bible never did that. I could go on, but I won't. How about this question? How can I argue with another man's experience? At the point where a man is leaning on his experience. Well, I know this because I was there. Or I know this to be true about the Bible because I've experienced it in my life. See, that's the personalized evidentialist. That's the person who believes what he believes based on whether or not he can ratify it with his own life. 
And then this phrase. And this sounds extremely noble. So long as it lines up with Scripture, then it's biblical. Is that true? Not if the person who's determining whether or not it lines up with Scripture doesn't know what he's doing. And I suggest that more often than not, the person that makes that statement doesn't know what he's doing so long as it lines up with Scripture. What does that even mean? A lot of times what that can mean is that the phrase they've just used could be found in some other similar combination somewhere in the Bible. You know the story of the guy who said, I'm just going to read the Bible right here. I'm going to do whatever it says. <laughs> Judas hanged himself. Oops. See, that's a bad hermeneutic, but it's not uncommon. An honest approach to the Bible involves subjecting yourself to the training of other people who've been trained to study the Bible. Now, please don't think that I'm saying that you and your Bible alone are not going to be a good combination for experiencing spiritual growth. You need that, but you increasingly need to be subject to those who have understood how to rightly interpret the Bible. And I have found many times that the person who is most frustrated in the Christian life is the person who does persevere, but he has a very bad hermeneutic, and he finds himself at odds with most people on at least some issues because he's convinced that when he read a passage of Scripture or two or three or whatever, that it was confirmed by God as he read it. So he holds to that theology, and he clings to it firmly, even against the most reasonable, humble, and persuasive argument from Scripture itself. Well, these phrases seem to sanctify all things that might otherwise be questionable. I checked it out against the Bible, and it passed the test. The question is, though, what is that test? And often, very often, people who make this statement already operate under the assumption that if God spoke in dreams and visions and through other personal experiences at any point in the biblical historical record, he must certainly be doing so today. Now think of it. If that principle were true, then you and I would be responsible for engaging in animal sacrifices in this moment. Our animal sacrifices in the Bible was at once prescribed, yes, for a time the same way that apostolic leadership was prescribed for a time, in the same way that the sign gifts were prescribed for a time, but not for all time. Years ago, a woman told me that her second husband, who wanted nothing to do with Christ or with his church and would take multiple year-long breaks from her, was most certainly a Christian. When I asked why, she said she believed her husband was a Christian because God told me to marry him, and God would not tell me to marry an unbeliever because that would go against the Bible. I said, I can't argue with the latter part of that statement. You would be unequally yoked if that were the case. But how do you know that God told you that? She said, because it was confirmed by scripture and prayer. I said, what do you mean? She said, I prayed and read my Bible and God told me to marry him. 
I didn't want to marry him. I wanted to be married, but I didn't want to marry him. I didn't even really like him. But he kept pursuing me, and I couldn't keep saying no because I went away by myself for a few days, and while I was away, God told me to marry him. Immediately to my mind came Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Chances are pretty good he's not going to you know, cause you to marry somebody that you don't really like being around. I might have even said something like that. But I said to her, was it a voice? Exact quote. Well, sort of, but not really. Could you hear him audibly? Yes, but not exactly. <laughs> not like you might think. So why do you know it was God? Well, because it was. I was reading my Bible and praying during that time in my life and asking him to answer my prayer, and he did. And you're sure he's a believer? Yes, God would not tell me to marry an unbeliever. Is it possible that you just thought God told you to marry him, and he actually didn't tell you that? No, I know he is a believer, and therefore it was definitely God who told me to marry him. But I thought you said you knew he was a believer because God told you to marry him. Don't challenge my experience. See, if the idea that an experience can be validated by Scripture is true, and the proof rests in their willingness, that person's willingness to say Scripture validated it, then how can anyone's experience be called into question? If it simply comes down to that person saying, I had an experience, I know it was of the Lord, I checked it out, it's biblical. How can you engage in a reasonable, honest, spirit-filled, edifying conversation with that person? They completely cut you off. All they have to do is say, I've tested it, and it's from God. But does God actually speak that way? If so... What is the criteria for determining whether or not the experience is actually from God? In the scripture, when God speaks, was it that easy? Is that how it worked? You know, the person who considers himself to be a Bible expert and says, God told me, I know, because I know the Bible. I know my Bible, man. And I know this is biblical because I know my Bible and I applied my Bible to the experience. Is it that easy? Could the person simply say, I know how to test these things because I've been a student of God's word for a long time now, and I know what I'm talking about. Is that how it works? Of course it doesn't work that way. Of course not. That person has just declared himself or herself to be the ultimate adjudicator, the standard of truth. He or she has set himself or herself in the position of determining what's of God and what isn't. How about the person who says Jesus came to him in a dream? This is happening a lot in Muslim communities. It's been going on now at length for about 15 years. In 2005, there was a tremendous upswing of people saying Jesus came to me in a dream. I'm no longer a Muslim. I'm Christian now. People who have never heard the gospel. Don't know anything about the gospel. I've watched a number of videos where these people who were Muslims claiming to know Christ 
and they know absolutely nothing about what it means to be a Christian, but they're saying, I love Jesus, I know Jesus, because Jesus came to them in a dream. Did you know that dreams are prevalent in Islam? So these people who are already in the mindset of thinking that God talks to them are receiving something, maybe it's real, maybe it's really coming from somewhere, and they attest to the idea that it's Jesus. Crazy thought, I know, but is it possible that Satan masquerades as an angel of light and calls himself Jesus? I say certainly so, because the Bible says that that happens. But I say in these cases where a person cannot identify the gospel, cannot identify the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ to save one from sins, and the power of the resurrection to grant victory over that sin in this lifetime, a person who can't identify that but says, Jesus came to me in a dream. I'm no longer a Muslim. I'm I'm a Christian now. What's he going to lean on? He's going to lean on the fact that Muslims kill former Muslims. Clearly, this is real because look at what I was willing to give up and sacrifice. Well, deceit knows no limits in terms of persuading people to believe that which is not real to be real. So it shouldn't surprise us that a person would be willing to abandon one form of false theology and embrace another Why would we be surprised by that? He's feeling pretty good about himself at that point. Jesus came to him in a dream. But what if someone disagrees based on the same hermeneutic principles? So what if I told you that I had a dream? And in that dream, God told me. Now listen, you can't argue with my experience. Based on your hermeneutic, if that's your hermeneutic, and I don't think it is in here, But the person who says, that's how it works, I was there, I know it's true. If I approach you or that person with that same hermeneutic, what if I said, God gave me a dream, and it lines up with Scripture, because there are dreams in the Bible. And God told me that every dream that ever happened, except for the ones in the Bible, and mine, are fake. God told me. Lines up with scripture. <laughs> see, you see my point? You've completely eliminated any measure of edifying interaction. If you are convinced, if a person is convinced, I had a dream, God gave me the dream, despite what the Bible reveals about dreams. Here's another sidebar the idea of miracles. The Bible is just fraught with miracles, right? They're everywhere. They're on every page, every era in history, right? Miracles are just all over the place throughout the Bible, right? No. No. There are three very, very short eras, about 70, 75 years each, where miracles take place as recorded in the Scripture, right? And someone, you know, goes to the mall two or three days before a wedding and finds something that matches and it works for the wedding, and they say, that's a miracle. (laughs) No, that's pretty cool, but it's not a miracle. (laughs) Miracle is a floating axe head. It's impossible, and it still happened. Parting of the Red Sea, it's impossible, but it still happened. That's a miracle. There were three eras recorded in Scripture. Time of Moses, time of Elijah and Elisha, in the time of Jesus, and each period was about 70, 75 years long, and that was it. Does God still do great things? He does, but he's not performing miracles today. 
not the defiance of natural reality. Is he still healing people? Sure he is. Of course he is. Is he still answering prayer? Yeah, and that's great. And only God can do those things. But the idea that it's in the Bible, therefore, I must be experiencing it, or other people must be experiencing it, does not hold water. It's a really bad argument. And many times, and I think you know this, people will cling to something that they have thought was true, they want it to be true, with a lack of willingness to consider the possibility that it wasn't what they thought it was. Because if it's in the Bible, certainly it happens today. You know, the person who says God came to me in a dream, is it possible he just had a dream? And he himself decided that it was God who came to him in the dream? If he has a thought and he attributes it to God, is it possible that he just had a thought and he decided it was from God? Of course that's possible. The person says, well, what if the dream comes true? Don't we know then that it was of the Lord? And my question for that is, why in the world would you think that? Why does that mean anything? Here's an example. I had a dream last night, and God told me that someone here today would have back pain. It's true, therefore it was God, right? He told me someone else is having trouble paying their bills. I had a dream last night. God told me somebody's having trouble paying their bills. Yep. Somebody raises their hand. Yeah, I'm having trouble paying my bills. Oh, therefore, that was from God. That's how this stuff is validated. Oh, by the way, God told me somebody's going to die in the future. <laughs> it's got to be of God, right? Let me just give you the names of some fairly well-known people who operate with this hermeneutic. Most of these names won't surprise you, won't be unfamiliar to you. A guy named Brigham Young operated that way. Joseph Smith, Paul Crouch, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, Oral Roberts, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagan, John Hagee, John Wimber, and a guy that we affectionately call the Pope. In April of 1997, Pope John Paul II referred to the role of Mary during the crucifixion of Jesus this way. Jesus is being crucified. This is Mary's role. Quote, Mary cooperated during the event itself and in the role of mother. Thus, her cooperation embraces the whole of Christ's saving work. She alone was associated in this way with the redemptive sacrifice that merited the salvation of all mankind. In union with Christ and in submission to him, she collaborated in obtaining the grace of salvation for all humanity. In God's plan, Mary is the woman, the new Eve, united to the new Adam in restoring humanity to its original dignity. Her cooperation with her son continues for all time in the universal motherhood, which she enjoys in the order of grace. Trusting in this maternal cooperation, let us turn to Mary, imploring her help in all our needs. She was officially declared co-redemptrix, meaning co-redeemer. say, where do you get this? Well, it's biblical, right? I mean, you see redemption in the Bible. You see Mary in the Bible. You, you didn't see Jesus declared as redeemer until Jesus came on the scene, so that was new. So maybe Mary being co-redemptrix, maybe that's, maybe that's valid too. And you and I might sit here and shake our heads, but people believe this. Why? because they believe the Pope has a real experience with God. And it is absolutely no different from the person today who says, God told me. It's the exact same hermeneutic. And the right question to ask is, so you're saying 
thus saith the Lord. Now, you don't speak in old King James English, but you're saying the same thing when you say God told me. And you're saying the same thing when you say, I know that it's true because I know that it's true. You know, you know that you know that you know that you know that you know. Some of you heard that before. And with that mindset, how do you argue with the Pope? It's biblical, right? According to him, say, well, no, it's not biblical unless I say it's biblical. Listen to this from Ezekiel 13, verse 1. Ezekiel 13. The word of the Lord came to me. Now, this really was the word of the Lord, in case you're wondering. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, this is God speaking to Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts. So what you're to say to them, those who prophesy from their own hearts. You're supposed to say this to them, Ezekiel. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, this is in quotes, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. So one thing's for sure, this goes on. This happens. People say it's of the Lord when it's not. God is saying here to a legitimate prophet, a legitimate disseminator of God's truth, you need to go to those who are lying and saying that they have truth when they're pulling stuff out of their hearts and they're attributing it to God. See, this was never the norm in Scripture, the idea that you or I would get specific revelation from God. It was never the norm. So why is it that so many modern Christians seem to be under the impression that this was always and currently how it works? How did this happen? How in our era did we get to the place where people so commonly and so easily say, God told me? We live in an era where personal experience is sacred. Roman Catholicism presented salvation by faith plus works, placing an unbearable yoke on man, forcing him to uphold an impossible standard, very similar to what the Judaizers did. Whether for the Pharisees of Jewish legalism of Jesus' day, or the Pharisees of Roman Catholicism of Luther's day, or even our day, the motive was the same. Keep the people uninformed about biblical truth. The Jews did that by producing extra-biblical oral traditions. The Talmud and Mishnah became extra-biblical standards by which the Jews measured life and faithfulness and exercised control over people's lives. Roman Catholicism measured it and still does by tradition. Up through the 16th and 17th centuries, the doctrine of salvation by faith plus works was most prevalent in the granting of indulgences as it effectively lined the pockets of spiritual leaders. If you could buy a close loved one out of hell or purgatory, you would. You could salve your conscience not only for their eternal condition, but also for your failure to convert them while they were alive. So how was this power maintained? By keeping the Bible out of the people's hands. That's how. 
With the advent of the printing press and the Geneva Bible, and later the King James Bible, this changed. I'll never forget, I had just become the new principal at the Christian school. I was also on the pastoral staff, church I was at in Lancaster. There was a substantial contingency of people from Syria who were Eastern Orthodox. One family, before Kimberly and I were married, they invited me over. We were having dinner. We talked about a number of things. And for some reason or another, he brought up Mary and her virginity. And when I told him that Mary had actually given birth to other children, that Jesus had brothers and sisters, he, he rejected it. He denied it. I took him to Matthew 13, verse 54, opened a Bible, and I read, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? This man got really, really hot at this point. He was visibly angry, and fortunately it wasn't with me. <laughs> he said in a very animated tone, I go down to the church and talk to the priest. <laughs> that man lied to me. <laughs> Pass the potatoes, please, I said. My work here is done. So modern evangelicalism's response to this spiritual imprisonment is to say it's every man for himself to interpret the word of God and however you interpret it is fine because you've got the freedom to do it. You're no longer imprisoned to false doctrine in Roman Catholicism. And the man who operates this way is like the man described in Judges 23, about whom it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's just another wave of that reality. And hell hath no fury like that which he'll unleash against the person who questions what he does and says and how he interprets Scripture. Proverbs 21, verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, I mentioned a number of people who have misinterpreted Scripture and they've added to it. I want to mention one more and then we'll close. In Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, listen to how she responds. And the woman uh, said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. This is still Eve speaking. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. That, my friends, is an addition to God's word. God did not say that. Is there anything wrong with saying, do not touch it? That wouldn't be a wrong thing to say, but what's the problem? God didn't say it. But it's a good thing, but he didn't say it. But it's a good thing, but he didn't say it. That's the argument back and forth. Who cares whether or not he said it? It's a good thing. Oh, now I get it. You're a liberal theologian. Now, don't say that. That wouldn't help. But that's the truth. Here's what he said. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the 
tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. He didn't say anything about touching it or not. You say, but it's a practical application. Eve was a budding preacher. No, she was confused. But friends, this is the gateway. This is how it works. Add something to the word of God that sounds good. I had a dream, and in that dream, God came to me, and he told me I should read my Bible. Is that a good thing? Yeah, but was it really God that said that? You already know you should read your Bible because the Bible tells you to read your Bible. See how that works? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't operate that way. Now, just for the record, let me tell you what God did tell me. God told me, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place. With that knowledge, you and I will do well to pay attention to the Word of God. And let the Word of God and the Word of God alone be the exclusive resource by which we determine what God has said. A dear friend of mine said some time ago, when someone said, God told me. His response was, did you get that in writing? It's a great response. I still haven't answered the question for you, does God still speak today? And I'll answer that next week. Let's pray. Father, what kindness you've shown to us in giving us your word. We really think of the, the kindness of the man or the woman, the dear friend who gives us their word. And when we know that person to be reliable, the person who follows through, a person whose word is his bond, a person who is faithful to what he has said, we know that person to be trustworthy. And yet, we can be certain that that person will fail us just as we will fail them somewhere down the road. Not you. Not you, though. Your word does not pass away. It cannot pass away because you cannot pass away. And your word is a perfect expression of you. We pray, Father, that you will help us knowing that we will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day when the morning star rises in our hearts. Lord, we ask these things for your glory. Amen.